Welcome to today's podcast with the Climate Collective. We're talking to James Walker, who is CEO and a board member of Nano Nuclear. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation talking about global energy issues, how it affects all these different industries, and how we need new innovative solutions. And we talk about the, the scaling challenge, um, actually trying to work out how you fit the right technologies to the right industry, uh, and the, the access to funding. My, my name is James Walker. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Nano Nuclear Energy. Um, we are a micro-reactor company um, specializing in the design and deployment of um, two micro-reactor designs um, with the aim to become a vertically integrated company over time, which will mean um, fabricating our own fuel, um, deconverting our own fuel, um, and the transportation of our own fuel, not just for our company, but for other micro-reactor companies as well. Um, with an ultimate aim of um, powering, um, essentially deploying thousands of uh, micro-reactors across the world over time. Um, my, my personal background is I worked as a nuclear physicist and nuclear engineer um, in, the, in the UK, um, specifically with the, U, um, with the Ministry of Defence uh, in the submarine programme, involved in the design of um, reactors for the for submarines and um, I was also seconded to Rolls-Royce where I worked as a physicist in the design of the next generation of nuclear reactors for the next generation of submarines and um, uh, for a short while I was a thermal hydrolysist. Before I made the, um, the move to uh, North America where I got more involved in public markets um, and that's how Nano got established in partnership with the chairman, uh, J.U. Welcome to the Climate Collective Podcast, a place for in-depth conversations about the cutting edge of climate solutions. Each episode, we talk to innovators, scientists, and policymakers about what excites them, what frustrates them, going behind the scenes and dissecting the hype. Uh, amazing. So, James, uh, really, really good to have you. Uh, thank you very much for making the time. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having me, both of you. So. Uh, maybe before you start, I mean, how uh, how long have you lived in Vancouver? Um, I've actually been in Vancouver now for about it'll be it'll be seven years this October. So um, uh, I actually used to. I, I obviously you can probably tell by the accent. I was a UK citizen um, when I was in the nuclear industry, but as the, as nuclear was ramping down. Um, around about 2014, I thought, well, let's try a different country and a different industry and um, uh, maybe get, get a bit of a change of scene. So Canada Canada was the option and you know, it looked quite an exciting country to move to. So I thought I'd give it a go. And Gather, if I, if, I, uh, if I understand correctly, still has a, has a pretty vibrant uh, nuclear um, industry still. There's a lot of power coming from nuclear power plants, right? It does, yeah. So, like the can-do reactors are over here, but um, admittedly, even though I I bumped into a lot of my nuclear physics colleagues that had come over here actually to, to work, um, when I did 
leave the UK, I started a new industry, more capital markets and um, uh, creating public companies, which is how I met the chairman, um, J.U., because he was, he was a banker in New York. Um, and it was actually him that approached me and just said, do you want to get back into nuclear? Um, and I said, that's crazy. You know, <laughs> that's a very established industry with lots of major players in it. Um, but uh, he said, well, why don't we examine the market? And actually, we, we ended up examining the market and realized in the microreactor space, there was hardly any competition. Nobody had reached prototype level at that point. Um, and that's where the, the biggest potential market was, actually. Um, mining sites, military bases, remote locations, remote habitation, remote industrial projects, oil and gas projects. Um, if you wanted to electrify the grid, um, make the nuclearize the shipping industry, anything like that, you needed micro-reactors. We thought, actually, you know, this is the area where we can really attack. Um, and that's actually what brought me back into nuclear, was, um, was that analysis and uh, that connection that I made because of my new role in Canada in, in public markets. So, I love the the thing I love about energy at the moment is it really is such a dynamic industry, something that was taken for granted and hasn't evolved so long. My background was steel and we've just been working in cement and you know, industries that go through change. And and now, as you say, I mean, just if you're just shipping alone, just the, the, the idea you've got to take a whole industry off bunker fuel and all the supply chains that go with that and all the standardization insurance, it's insane the amount of change. And then you've got government policies and intergovernmental policies, how you... You know how you pick the right fuel. Is it going to be green hydrogen? Is it nuclear? Yeah, actually, you're 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 100 right because really we didn't just start with nuclear either. Like there was a real analysis done of all potential energy sources, and um, we one of our directors was a former DOE, a Department of Energy um, worker, and he had been involved in a two billion dollar project for solar farm. But after about three years, most of it was inefficient to the point of uselessness and they basically written it off and it would essentially been $2 billion lost. Um, they look like very high breakdown of the, of the materials that were involved. Um, certainly probably the technology has improved since then. But it, really when we looked at things like energy and wind, they had to be localized to where you could generate that type of energy. You didn't have the maneuverability that you got with, say, small nuclear, where you can really put it in. And you can't get any sort of, in these remote locations, they... They run on diesel anyway. Like, for instance, when I first moved to Canada, there was a very small city I was living in called Yellowknife. And at the time, it was running exclusively on diesel, and that was a city of 30,000 people. There was no option to switch it to solar or wind. It didn't have the wind for it. It didn't have the solar for it. Um, and when you look at examples like that, the only solution is, is really nuclear. And you know, like you mentioned, bunker fuel, too. Like, we became familiar with it. As we looked into industries where we could, could deploy this um, technology and we already know with the, the US um, naval fleet that's hundreds of ships um, of enormous size being pushed around the world exclusively by nuclear power and they've been doing it for decades without incident so we know it can be done but again we've never advanced a reactor to the point where it's mobile it can be transported it can be shrunk down to a really small size and put onto these sort of commercial vessels to ship these uh, vehicles all around the world because bunker fuel is dirty you know it's, it's a real really dirty and um, if, if you're looking to try and make the world a greener place then replacing those ships or, or nuclearizing the fleets um, with, with nuclear would would go a long way towards that hmm. 
And, and I suppose the, the final thought for me um, was on that is that governments aren't the best people to make these decisions. I mean, it makes me think of the UK government driving people to switch from petrol to diesel. And then, you know, a few years later, they realise that's not such a good idea. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's a shame because, like, sometimes the government's heart is in the right place. Like, Germany is a good example of a country that actually ran, they, they scaled down their nuclear in an effort to switch more to, say, wind and solar. But, you know, reality is, is not an idealist. And what ended up happening is they ended up burning more Polish coal, buying more French nuclear and becoming dependent on Russian gas. And it's, it's not through lack of trying and it's not through technical expertise that they fail. It's just the reality of these energy systems had small capacity factors in relation to things like nuclear, which is a several times higher capacity factors. So it can run all the time and you can ramp up, ramp down as you need. Um, and if you're not, and if you don't have something like that, then you are going to have to burn gas or coal or or, or something like that, um, which you can ramp and ramp up down when you, when you want. Uh, and of course, with Germany, the, the timing ended up being extremely, extremely difficult both for them and for all of Europe. Yeah, it was, it was really, I mean, they could never have known what was coming around the corner. But, you know, I think a lot of countries have, looked, have seen them and they think, well, actually, energy independence um, or domestic energy security is actually incredibly important because, you know, I'm sure Germany had all sorts of foreign policy things it wanted to say about the war in Ukraine. But they can't really say much. It's just like, you know, we, we're getting a very large bulk of our energy from this country. Um, that we, we can't really openly criticize what we seem to be allying with their enemy too much um, because we are dependent. And it's, it's a knock-on effect of not having your own energy security. Um, but yeah, they, obviously they couldn't have seen that coming, but you never know what's coming. So you, you might as well become energy independent. And I guess, I mean, the, the difficulty there is, I mean, or what we've seen happen is that because uh, of that realization that uh, national energy independence, independence is so important, we've seen kind of this rush again towards, okay, let's uh, get more petrol, get more oil, kind of continue kind of all these oil explorations. And that's going really very much against where we need to go in terms of uh, reducing our uh, reliance on fossil fuels. Well, that's right. The, the the move away from nuclear just coincided with burning more coal. I mean, that, that was just the reality. That happened in the UK too, is it, as less power began um, to be sourced from nuclear sources, just had to switch more to gas. And like these things have a larger carbon footprint um, and they need to be imported. Um, there's, there's just, you know, as I said, reality is not an idealist. Eventually, you're going to have to make some. It's 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 checks and balances, and like you can't have a perfect solution. Um, maybe fusion in 30, 40 years might be that perfect solution, but you know our, our Cambridge scientists are very skeptical. <laughs> but um, in the meantime, it's and it's not just Europe either. Um, you know, Nano is a U.S. company, and um, in the states, for instance, a lot of their nuclear material was being sourced from from Russia, and they were taking high-grade material and they were down-blending into what they needed. Um, and that dependence um, got cut off, that supply chain, and then they realized that there were, there were very large gaps in the infrastructure, the ability to fuel fabricate or transport fuel or deconvert fuel um, or enrich. You know, the, all of these, all of these um, 
uh, capacities were were lost essentially because of not shortcuts exactly, but reliance on that foreign source and the assumption that it will continue. Um, and so, like even over here now, there's a massive drive in in the U.S. to get back towards um, independence and, and uh, energy independence, and that means a big drive back into nuclear. So there's a huge amount of funding going back into the industry now and um, big programs being set up exactly to fund fund the development of the next generation nuclear power, which includes SMRs and micro reactors. So maybe, um, you know, as we're kind of looking at, at, at nuclear and sort of potentially a renewed role for nuclear and global energy generation, um, obviously there's the big elephant in the room is that uh, for for kind of the general public, uh, most people like lots of people have this idea that nuclear uh, has an element of danger to it. Uh, and so, so maybe if you could talk to us about a little bit about like how things are today, like what what's the nuclear energy uh, industry today? What's the technology today? How does it differ from what we have in mind from the past, from some of the past disasters, and so on? Yeah, I think nuclear has has really suffered from the worst PR. I think possible, and, and that's part of, probably partially due to the fact that, say, large civil plants in the past were, because they were co-owned by the government or sponsored by them, there wasn't any drive to have any sort of education about nuclear. Nuclear is actually the safest energy source. If you look at gigawatts generated per depth um, over the, the lifetime of nuclear um, compared to anything else over the same period, and you can, can include solar and wind, Nuclear beats all of them, um, and it's not very well known about. It's like you can hear about things like Fukushima or Fremile Island, and they sound scary, but no one died at those things. It's actually very difficult to kill anyone. Like I, obviously, the one everyone always brings up is like Chernobyl, but that was a very weird situation where they were in test conditions. They were trying to break the reactor. They were they turned off all the safety systems. Um, they they ruled out human intervention. Um, when they had the opportunity to do it. And they had a top-down Moscow-driven drive to um, overrule all the, all the mechanisms in place. It's it's almost, it's incredibly difficult to break a reactor um, or create a reactor failure, but it's, it's just not known about. Uh, like you could say nuclear is three times as safe as wind because um, way more people die in the construction of um, uh, mills or, or windmills than in the, the operation and establishment of the nuclear power station. So the, I think an education element has to be part of it. Um, and with regard to the technologies that are coming out now, um, even though nuclear is the safest, like when you start going smaller, you reduce the number of mechanical parts, working parts and systems within a reactor and that makes it inherently safer again. So you, you have the safest energy source and you're making it even safer. Like if you take we have two designs at the moment, um, one being um, developed by professors and scientists emanating from the University of Berkeley and uh, coincidentally um, another reactor being designed by the University of Cambridge professors and their postdocs there. And both reactors almost entirely remove working parts. They're, very, they're passively cool systems, which means that you could just leave it and it can't break. I mean, it can't melt, it can't spill. It, and if, if every single working part in that reactor just broke at the same time, it would just radiate heat out. So you can't get the core melt, you can't get the coolant leak, and you can't get the accident conditions that you would need for 
you know, a cleanup operation. It would just radiate out heat. So they've even got safer. It's like, um, I think, the, I think obviously humans as emotional animals, there is a emotional element to radiation where it's a, it's an invisible thing that you can't see. It's like an invisible tiger in the room. And that, that can create sort of an, an irrational fear of it. But um, essentially when you look at all the metrics of it, this is, this is the energy you want. It's zero carbon emitting. It's the safest one you can, you can, you can have and install. It gives you energy independence. And the reactors that are coming out now are even safer than the previous ones. It makes me think about the, it's the, the government decision-making paradox. And the best example I, I've got of it always in my head that I go back to is the decision to ground the airplanes when there was volcanic ash in the air. And so for that weekend in Europe, I knew a lot of people that just drove for 12, 24 hours to get from where they needed, you know, Italy to, to Sweden was one example. And so the number of people that died from road traffic accidents, that increase was never quantified. But actually, you could have lost two, three planes quite happily and you would have fewer people would have died from that decision. But from a politician point of view, they couldn't be seen as the person who hadn't taken what was perceived as to being the safest action. Yeah, look, you're, it's a it's 100% politics can creep into it. And it, like, for instance, here in America, um, like Yucca Mountain, they, there was this massive mountain in New Mexico that they were turning into a, a waste facility. And um, just because of the politicking, um, agreements were struck where they closed it down and billions of dollars were lost essentially in the construction of this thing. But it was there was no problems. With it. it would have been a wonderful facility to have. I bet they wish they had it now. Um, but when deals get struck like that and politicians are trying to look good or go against unpopular industries, that can dictate policy um, and that can dictate national actions. It's, not in the, it's, it's, it's often not in the public interest. and Maybe the politicians don't even realize that. Um, but, you know, the, these are the drivers rather than a rational, long-term, sober approach to how to power your country. Uh Maybe going to um, so um, you know I I know about nuclear as much as a someone who is generally interested in energy and climate uh, knows. But to be honest, uh, all I know is that you um, bump some particles together at high energies, uh, they release more energy, and uh, hey, that's nuclear power. That's fantastic. Uh, to be honest, like. Um, you know, we start talking about things like, uh, I, you know, I know, broadly speaking, no difference between fusion and fission. Uh, yes, but then talking about old generation, new generations of uh, nuclear reactor, uh, micro, small, uh, nano. Uh, can you give us maybe like a bit of a lay of the land of what what, what are the kind of the main categories and what uh, is that new generation of reactors uh, that you're working on? So the small or micro small how are they different and how do they operate differently and what kind of use cases uh, do you see for them? Sure, so um, I'll, I'll start with the fusion-fission thing just to differentiate. So fission is the power source that we've always drawn from. We've, we've never drawn a, uh, any energy from fusion ever. It's a, it's a perspective idea where you fuse light nuclei um, and the, the fusion process actually is a bigger release of um, energy than um, fissioning. And, Fissioning, the conventional uh, nuclear mechanism for generating energy, is the, um, the splitting of an atom, which is done by neutron emission, cutting up an atom, essentially, 
And in that process, more neutrons are released and it has a chain effect that goes on to split more uh, uranium atoms. Then the, the amalgamated effect is a big release of energy. And that can be very carefully controlled by the neutron emission rate. And, and that's pretty much how all reactors will work in all of the it's exactly that process. Um, there are some reactors looking at thorium as an alternative to uranium. Um, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that for more technical reasons, which I won't get into, but essentially all the reactors that are being looked at at the moment um, that have made serious developments are all still uranium. And so it's, it's old tech and it's old mechanisms and it's just being reapplied in the same way. So historically, there's never been an SMR or microreactor commercially deployed. They've all been large civil power plants. Uh, SMR is small nuclear reactor? Small, small modular reactor. Just to define what those are. So SMR really is anything between about generating about 20 megawatts electric and about 500 megawatts electric, roughly in that, within that range of power output. And a micro reactor is anything below 20 megawatt electric output. So very small. So there is, there is a difference between the micro reactor and the SMR, even though they those two categories get lumped together sometimes. Um, but historically, all power generated within countries was in much larger uh, nuclear power facilities. Um, uh, and those were gigawatt, two gigawatt facilities. The, the advantage that SMRs bring is that they can be, they can be deployed faster, they can be set up quicker. Um, and then the advantage that microreactors potentially have is that these things will be much more mobile and they will be able to manufacture um, the core or the, the plant itself at a factory and then shipped to an area and then quickly set up at that, at that location. And then feasibly actually move to different locations as you need. And so the, the microreactor is, and the SMR are attacking different businesses. Like the, like, um, SM, uh, New Scale or X-Energy or Rolls-Royce, they're building SMRs. And these are still fairly large power systems. Um, and so they'll probably be looking to power towns or cities and things like that. Whereas microreactors will be doing more remote industrial projects, mining operations, um, you know, oil and gas. They could nuclearize the fleet. They could be charging stations for EV vehicles in remote locations. Um, like motorway uh, motorway service stations where you can have a, a charging station that operates for 20 years off one microreactor that charges tens of thousands of uh, electric vehicles. And that'll be necessary if you completely want to electrify the grid is you'll need those, those microreactors to do that. Um, and so those, those are the main differences, but one big difference that's made SMRs and microreactors a bit more possible is that, um, the fuel typically in um, a civil power reactor will be enriched to say sort of 5% or up to 5% and somewhere in that range, 1% to 5% uh, U235. Whereas when you get a bit more compact, you can enrich all the way up to about 20%. Um, and then you have a higher power density um, compacted into a small reactor um, that can operate without needing refueling for 20 years. Um, and uh, you don't need to have the big systems in place because because of that higher power uh, density that you've created with that more rich fuel. So 20 years of power delivered through just essentially it's a uh, the, that micro reactor and the fuel itself within, within it, you won't need to change it, won't need to replenish it. 
for something like 20 years. That's right. That, that's what we're seeing with both of the microreactor designs we've got at the moment. Um, the physics modeling is telling us that, that it, they are units that we'll be able to manufacture probably at our factories, um, and then we'll deploy them. Um, and they'll be able to operate independently for 20 years without needing refueling. So you can see the advantage to say a shipping company um, or even charging station or remote habitation is that a lot of these things run on diesel and that needs constant or bunker fuel and that needs constant refueling and the logistics around obtaining that fuel, getting the fuel to, to where it's needed um, and all the mechanical systems involved. You know, microreactors could reshape the entire um, energy landscape of the world because um, not just making it a bit cleaner by, re by eliminating this dependence on diesel, which can't be competed against in all fairness because of its utility in these environments. Um, but you would save enormous amounts of money as well by nuclearizing um, and not having to deal with the logistics shipping in diesel or getting diesel and constant replenishing of it over the lifetime of 20 years. So something that uh, really struck me was uh, when we first met was at Reset Connect in London, and uh, you had the, the image of the design of one of your reactors, uh, Zeus, uh, and essentially it uh, it could fit in a truck, uh, in the back of a semi-truck, right? Uh, yeah. Which seemed to be, uh, that was very, um, I think, you know, quite something to see, okay, like you could have... Uh, yes, it's a micro uh, nuclear reactor, but something that's able to deliver this much, you know, huge amount of energy over many, many years, and uh, just something that a truck could transport and take from one place to another. Yeah, and look, uh, we the reason why this business was pursued actually is because it, there was not, nothing really that could compete with that kind of utility. There was, there's, there's no energy out there that's that's that compact that you could basically create it and it would be able to run for 20 years without refueling and you could ship it to anywhere you wanted um essentially as long as you use any sort of conventional transportation infrastructure trucks shipping container trains um and then you know it kind of makes it peerless in that way um so like you know we, we realized up in canada where i am at the moment actually um that uh, all the mines in the north were being run on diesel. They needed diesel shipped in pretty much on a daily basis to be able to run these operations. And not only could nuclear, say, make these more economic, but actually it would, it would open up enormous resources to um, that were, weren't previously economic, because suddenly you don't need to have the logistical operation of shipping in that diesel on a daily basis to run these big operations. You have your power source there. And it opens up enormous mineral wealth. And we, we quite quickly realized, actually, that, say, in a country like Africa that has large sections that are removed from the grid, there is enormous mineral wealth there, and people talk about it a lot. But they don't realize, like, the, the logistical difficulty of actually mining a lot of this stuff. Is, it's not impossible, but it's incredibly expensive and difficult because you, you can't just put people in the middle of nowhere and leave them there. If you want a major modern mining operation, BHP built in Rio Tinto, they can't run these operations without having that expensive logistical operation to bring in fossil fuels at all times to run those, those big operations. And so a microreactor potentially opens up enormous mineral wealth in Africa and kind of unlocks huge wealth for the continent. And so actually we've reached out to a, a number of African diplomats that 
we've recognized this problem in the past that there are these very remote areas um, with enormous mineral wealth, but also large communities that um, don't have access to medical facilities or desalination plants, but these microreactors could bring those in immediately. And then you have your desalination plants or medical facilities, your access to these, this mineral wealth, and you can unlock um, not just the human potential, but the mineral wealth of, uh, of say areas like that. And that's not even restricted to Africa. That's just an example of a, a continent that could be revolutionized by this kind of technology that previously has not been able to do. Brilliant. Um, so one of the things that I always like to ask on the podcast is about scaling and all the barriers that startups face when they're trying to reimagine an industry that, that that can be quite static for a while. If you had a magic wand, what would be the thing that you would address? Is it uh, Would it be something about funding, perhaps an investment or policy, regulation? Is there something where you just feel like the, our infrastructures are, are, are a bit broken? Um, I, I would say the the licensing in nuclear is is the longest lead item. Like as an example, like by the end of this year, we, we've already proved feasibility of our of our reactors, and now we're going into the defining design stage. Um, that'll be completed by the end of this year, and then the demonstration work will begin to do physical test work, and that'll take about eighteen months to two years. At that point, we actually have a working prototype that we're confident we can send to market but the licensing period and the regulationary period is, is is the longest lead item of that you could be looking at four or five years which is longer than the entire design phase testing phase and construction phase it would be if nuclear could be held to the same safety standards as any other energy that could be reduced dramatically but if there's a fact it's a factor it's held to a factor of 10 higher safety standard than anything else um, given um, public sentiment um, and it's it's not a it's not a barrier that's going to inhibit the future of nuclear because it's it's certainly being executed in a way now where enormous amounts of money are being driven into nuclear because it's being seen as really part of the solution to um, the, the the carbon emission dilemma. But but certainly a streamlining process of that licensing at least. If there was a way to get ready for the licensing period, to have materials ready for while you're doing that demonstration work, so you could you could concurrently do it just to to reduce the time. That would one, it would get nuclear power out faster. Um, it would reduce the bulk of the costs because actually your the the development stages, the scientific investigations, the demonstration work will always will all actually probably be less expensive than that regulatory period of licensing. Um, and I think that has been a big barrier to launching one of these things. Um, and that's why you only have one, there's one licensed SMR in the world, that's new scale. There's no prototype um, microreactors. Um, even though there's all this money flowing into the industry and um, there's enormous interest um, and government support for it, you know these historic um, regulatory hurdles are still there, and I think they need to be reevaluated for the new generation nuclear. Um, even if you want to keep them in place for the old generation nuclear, because these these up these these new reactors are smaller, safer, they do operate differently, they do have fewer working parts. Um, certainly, a reevaluation of the regulatory system around these things is, 
I think it's going to have to be a necessary next step if you want if you want to deploy these things a bit sooner to address um, climate emergencies and energy demand a bit sooner. Yeah, I, I think that. Uh, sorry, just over to you, but the the thing that people don't often think about, which really resonates for me, what you've just said, is the time factor. Is that actually carbon decarbonisation? Time is critical, and if we do it now versus we do it in ten years, it's hugely beneficial if we do it now. Uh, in comparison, it's, it's something that we see across many other different areas. Obviously, uh, with nuclear, it is uh, sort of very, very obvious because there's uh, kind of a lot of the historical sort of baggage and a lot of the uh, sort of the fears around nuclear and and obviously the the politics around that, uh, but we see very similar things around regulation. For example, for new construction materials that could be lower carbon, which are also like massive contributors to to emissions. And um, it's that regulation tends to be uh, you know for good reason. You know, safety regulations, whether in nuclear or in in, in buildings, uh, is extremely important. But um, it ends up being a, a, a factor that slows down innovation and slows down change. Uh, and and uh, as David said, I mean, the thing we don't have is time. And and uh, it's almost kind of thinking, okay, like, how do we solve that problem? And maybe part of it is just actually, you know, governments need to put in a lot more money uh, in regulatory bodies so they can move faster because obviously they are themselves constrained by lack of resources and they can only do so much as, as the resources they have. Yeah, like I... And there's legacy, there's legacy issues too that go for the, the, the company. This say, for instance, like to train up a qualified nuclear physicist will take you time. Um, and when you don't invest in an industry for a significant amount of time, you know the, the good minds will go into something else. Like I, I don't know how many physicists I know that went into banking as an example, because as the industry scales down, you, you know these guys were pretty clever. That's where the money is. Let's move into there, and then you've lost. Uh, a generation of people that could really assist not just the country, but the world in terms of energy supply. Um, and then you need more regulators, you need more people to license, but the qualified uh, people aren't there. Um, and so, for instance, like we, we, we recognize this as well. And even at, even at the University of Cambridge, we, we're in a partnership with them to build out a school that will train us up people that we'll need because... We don't want to have that shortage of, of personnel. Um, and it's, it's something the government's going to need to address. They're going to have to invest in education programs to build up that personnel um, so that they can deploy them to the licensing regulatory frameworks and, and, and um, not revolutionize, but, but revise, the, uh, re revise the regulation and licensing that's historically in place, which they can't do currently because they, they just don't have the manpower. One thing I wanted to uh, ask you about, and it's uh, because we, when we think of nuclear, we think of uh, predominantly uh, electricity generation. Um, and uh, you, you touch on shipping as well as a sort of a, a fuel source there. Um, but one area is uh, sort of in terms of industrial heat and kind of just kind of wondering to what extent can heat be produced uh, with a nuclear reactor? What kind of heat can be reached? Like, how does that work? So... I mean, actually, heat is the primary energy output. So, like the electricity from a reactor is actually a, a conversion of that heat. So, if you were, if you wanted to uh, generate uh, heat as opposed to electricity, you would actually generate more from a reactor. So, take as an example of um, one of our reactors at the moment. Say it's it's 
its output might be one point one or one point five megawatt electric. The actual um, megawatt thermal power would be like two point five three or, or more than that um, because of the efficiency factor of that conversion, which is usually about thirty five percent conversion efficiency. So if you actually wanted to generate heat um, from a reactor, that would even be preferable. Um, uh, and so you would generate a lot more from a microreactor and SMR. I know, I know in terms of things like um, hydrogen production as an example, higher heats are more efficient at producing hydrogen. If you wanted to, if you wanted to produce hydrogen optimally, like a, a, an SMR or a microreactor would be perfect for it because the heat they would generate would be um, high enough um, in terms of temperature to generate that efficiency that you need to produce a lot of hydrogen. Um, and certainly you could actually switch between them. Um, you could, you, you, there's no reason why you can't have a reactor that does both um, heat and electricity. And you can just switch between them and turn the turbine on to create that electricity as you need. Them. So you could, in your um, low requirements hours, convert to hydrogen production and then as you, as you needed more electrical, you could convert back and ramp down um, hydrogen production and switch to um, electric. Like they, they, it can be very versatile in that way, but but certainly like the heat generation um, of a reactor could have enormous potential as well. Actually, we got approached by um, a Bitcoin miner <laughs> that said, actually, you know, one of the problems with Bitcoin mining is and I know it's not very environmental, but um, it generates enormous amounts of heat. And it's quite dis difficult to dissipate. So they want to site them in cold places like Greenland, as an example. Um, but then you need to keep on shipping in diesel generators. Um, but like a microreactor would be perfect for generating the heat needed to power the computers to, um, to, to mine these things. That's probably a bad example because like, you know, my, uh, crypto mining is very energy intensive. It doesn't really produce um something that's directly useful to mankind um but you could by proxy like a tech center for instance you could operate that remotely and potentially just use the heat directly to to power that um remote tech facility yeah data centers is insane i think in terms of we don't realize how much they rely on diesel generators um yeah. to power the cloud very interesting that's uh sort of uh uh, read about recently is a uh, data center that's uh, they're using their uh, waste heat to uh, heat up a local swimming pool, uh, like a community swimming pool. Uh, and so the, the potential uses for these heats are things like district heating, for example. Uh, and I think if we uh, kind of a bit more creative in terms of collocating uh, things and so on, there's uh, definitely uses for uh, for these kinds of waste uh, waste energy. The data centers could be a massive one because there are certain advantages of having them in remote locations. They're very energy intensive um, and they generate a lot of heat. I mean, um, you know, you, you can keep on making computers smaller and smaller and smaller, but the laws of physics dictate that you'll still generate enormous amounts of heat and you, you can't get around, you know, universal laws. Um, and so, you know, it's, 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 and, but that heat has to come from somewhere. And typically these, these data centers, I know that they've tried to do more wind and solar in the past, and it's been very difficult um, because obviously location will dictate and sometimes capacity factors aren't optimal and you'll need to switch to diesel. And almost all of them have a redundant, all of them that have tried to go into renewables have redundancy measures of diesel generators in place just to 
keep the operation going. Otherwise, you could be shut down for an indeterminate amount of time. You can't run a business like that. So you end up burning a lot of diesel. And and James, when can we expect the first uh, bits of electricity coming from your reactors? So um, uh, we've talked a little bit about the um, licensing period. If it wasn't for that, I would say 2026, 2027. But um, given given that low licensing regulation period, we're looking at around about 20, 2029, 2030 for the deployment of a working product that can be shipped anywhere in the world to power remote um, uh, remote industrial projects, remote habitation, shipping industry, charging stations, data centers, anything like that. So that's the that's the timeline. Hopefully the sooner the better, the more uh, we need as much clean energy as, as we can get. Sooner the better. Very good. James, it's been really, really lovely speaking to you. I uh, could have uh, spent another hour talking about uh, all sorts of things around nuclear energy and the energy systems and all that. All right, same here. It's it's fun to talk about these things because it's sort of, um, it's not just the future, but it's sort of a, almost a global political issue. Yeah, it's, it's big. Well, that's fantastic. Well, good luck. I hope it all goes well. If ever you find yourself in London or Cambridge, uh, look us up and we'll happily buy you a beer. Thank you for listening. Tune in again in a few weeks for our next episode. Thanks and credits for the music go to King Fire Thermos. 